So thank you, Kay. Uh, really, really appreciate that. So, um, you know, we're in week four of our all-in journey, and it's important, I think, that we talk about the why, like the why of this journey. Why does this matter? Why are we doing this? Why is this journey so important? And I just want to say this, why is such an important question to ask? Uh, because when you ask why, you begin to get at motives, and motives matter. And so I want to start to, to get at the why. I'm going to kind of take a winding road for a moment, so bear with me. I promise we're going to get at the why of this journey. But uh, most of us are aware that when we pick up our Bibles, there is an Old Testament and there is a New Testament. But some of us may not realize uh, what the difference is between the two. The Old Testament is called old because something new came along to replace the old. The Old Testament contains something called the Old Covenant or the Old Agreement between God and the nation of Israel. And that agreement went like this. God said to the nation, he said, if you obey me, if you keep my law, I will keep you close to me and you will be my treasure among all the people of the world. I will be your God and you will be my people. If you keep my law, I will bless you. I will protect you. I will prosper you. And you will be a blessing to the whole world. On the other hand, if you disobey me, I will withdraw my blessing. I will, if you fail to keep the law, I will withdraw my protection and I will withdraw my provision. And the people of that nation, the people of Israel, said yes to that agreement. They pledged to obey and keep the law. And the whole Old Testament is a record, a painful record of their inability and or unwillingness to keep up their end of the bargain, uh, to live according to that agreement. And so the law, as God laid it out in that old covenant, contains 613 commands. And the story of the Old Testament records incident after incident of a people that either couldn't or wouldn't live according to God's law and how they then would reap the consequences of that. So um, God would send Jesus to bring a new agreement or a new covenant between a people and God. And this time the agreement is not going to be with a nation it's going to be with individuals. And this new covenant wouldn't be about uh, these individuals' ability to keep the law, but rather about their ability to follow and trust in a person. A person. So this time the agreement is going to come through this man named Jesus, right? And Jesus introduces this agreement on the night of a very important Jewish holiday. 
this Jewish holiday is infused with meaning, and, it's in, and, and it, you'll see exactly why Jesus chose to introduce and bring this new covenant at this holiday. He offers this new agreement on the night of Passover. Now, Passover was a time that was set aside for Israel to remember how God spared them and saved them from Pharaoh and slavery in Egypt through the shedding of blood. So Jesus stands up as all of Israel is remembering that they've been saved through the shedding of blood and he announces that it will be through the shedding of his blood that the new covenant will be put into place. And here are his words as, as he's bringing this new agreement. Here's what he says in John 13. You heard Kay read the words, but we can't read these words enough. Because these words represent the overarching uh, single mandate, our marching orders as followers of Jesus. And here's what they are. He says, a new command I give you, love one another. Now, that's so interesting because that command wasn't new. In fact, when Jesus said it, a new command I give you, love one another, I'm sure one of his disciples wanted to kind of raise their hand and say, Jesus, that's not really new. Deuteronomy 6 already tells us to love one another, to which Jesus would have said to that disciple, well, hold on because I'm not finished yet. I want you to love one another as I have loved you. Because that's new. Because that raises the bar. I don't want you to just love one another the way that you would want to be loved. I want you to love one another the way that I have loved you. With a lay down your life kind of love. With a sacrifice for others kind of love. I want you to love with a love that's going to be uncomfortable. I want you to, to love with a love that's going to make you less so that others can become more. Because that's exactly the kind of love that Jesus offered to his disciples, right? And then he makes this amazing statement in verse 35. He says, by this all men will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. So listen, this is so amazing. This means... That we're meant to be recognized as followers of Jesus by the way that we treat and care for and honor and love and pray for and serve one another. That that's the thing. Not, you know, that in other words, it's not meant to be a honk if you love Jesus bumper sticker on the back of your car. That's not meant to identify you as a follower of Jesus. What's meant to identify you is the intangibles of your relationships with other people in the family of God. See? And in fact, the other writers of the New Testament took this command... And they actually called it law. So I want you to look at this. So for example, um, James 2.8. So James, the half-brother of Jesus, right? Here's what he said. He said, if you really keep the royal law 
found in Scripture, love your neighbor as yourself, you're doing right or you're doing well. And what's so interesting about this one is that James puts a little spin on the command of Jesus because he heard Jesus in another occasion say something similar. He heard Jesus respond to a lawyer who asked him what the two greatest commandments were in the Old Testament. And Jesus said, well, you love God and you love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments of the Old Testament. So James puts a twist on the love one another command and he broadens it. And he says, no, it's not enough to just love one another, those inside the family of God. You've also got to love your neighbor. You've got to love anybody that you lock eyes with. And Jesus himself had also said that, right? But I want you to notice that James calls that law. That's the new law. In other words, there's a new sheriff in town. That's the new law. And then I want you to look, Paul does the same thing. The Apostle Paul, many of you know him. He was an early skeptic of Christianity. He uh, was uh, not just a skeptic, he actually hated the early church and Christians until he himself had an encounter with Jesus. And I want you to look what he writes. He says, carry each other's burdens... And in this way, you will fulfill what? The what of Christ? The law of Christ. The law of Christ. Now listen, in light of the New Testament, I want us to think back for a moment about a verse in the Old Testament. In the book of Jeremiah, in Jeremiah 31, the prophet Jeremiah sits down and begins to write on a scroll under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, and he says these words. He says, one day God is going to write his law on the hearts of his people. One day God is going to write his law on the hearts of his people. Now I have no doubt that when Jeremiah penned those words, he thought he knew what they meant. He thought when he was writing those words that that meant the law. Either the Ten Commandments or the 613 Commandments of the Law. That all of those commandments were going to be written on the hearts of people. But we have New Testament teaching. So what law is he talking about? What law was Jeremiah pointing to in Jeremiah 31? He was pointing to the law of Christ. He was pointing us to the law of love. And wouldn't you agree that even in our culture, people know they're supposed to be loving. People know they want to be loving, right? See, God has already written that law into the hearts of his people. And I just think this is so incredible, right? It just is so amazing. Now, So here's what all this means. I want to show you three slides, and you can even say for sure that you've been to church this morning, because we're going to do these slides in kind of King James English. So since we did some King James here together, you can say, hey, I really was. I went to church today. I was in church, right? And here they are. So the first slide says this, Christ's selfless love for me demands a selfless love for thee. Christ's selfless love for me demands a selfless love for thee. These are our marching orders. And, or you might say it this way, Christ's selfless love for me requires that I do what's best 
for thee. Not what's best for me, not what's best for myself, not what's best for my family, but what's best for God's family. What's best for others, right? Loving others with a lay-down-my-life kind of love. And we're going to get to that again in just a moment, right? Um, so, and then finally, here's one more kind of little phrase I hope you'll lock in there. It's this, when unsure of what to say or do, ask what love requires of you. Or you might say it this way, when unsure what to say or do, ask what Christ requires of you. But he's already told us, right? He wants us to love one another. So let me just ask you, because it's just such a, it's so simple and it's so um, elegant, but it's so difficult to live out, isn't it? Because self, self gets in the way of living this out. But I want to point out that there's no loopholes to love. Right? Love doesn't have a loophole. I'm either loving them well or I'm not. Right Now, um, so not only did Jesus come to bring a new means of salvation, but he came to bring a new and better ethic. An ethic that fulfilled all of the commandments of the Old Testament, but yet was... Uh, kind of, you know, rises up into a simple but profound principle. But Jesus changed the why of obedience. And it's so important that people understand this because it's confusing when they don't. In other words, we've already acknowledged, why did Israel need to obey God? Israel needed to obey God if they wanted to be blessed so they obeyed God to be blessed by God, right? They obeyed God if they wanted to be uh, protected. So they obeyed God so that he would protect them from their enemies. They obeyed God so that God would bless them. Because God had promised very clearly that if they did not obey him, that he would withdraw his blessing from them. So they obeyed him to get blessed. Listen, we don't obey God for any of those reasons. As followers of Jesus, we obey God because Jesus has already blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly realm according to the Apostle Peter. We obey because Jesus already looked out for us he already went to the cross he already laid down his life we don't obey God to get God to do something for us we obey God because of what he's already done through his son Jesus we love him because he demonstrated his love for us first and sacrificed on that love see the why of obedience is entirely different when under the rules of the Old Covenant versus the rules of the New Covenant. In fact, any time we're asked to be obedient, the only time in the New Testament that there's an appeal made to self-serving interest in obedience is when the Apostle Paul is talking to children in Ephesians chapter 6. And he says, hey, it's in your best interest to obey. Why would he do that? Well, because it's kids. 
Because kids, you need to talk to kids about what's in their best self-interest, right? But even there, Paul says, look, because Christ laid down his love life for you, you walk in a manner worthy of that. See, that's the, that's the why. Consistently, uh, nearly 100% of the time, that's the ask and that's the why. We obey Jesus because Jesus ultimately obeyed God and went to the cross to demonstrate that obedience to God. See, love is the why. So, so listen, so, so let's get clear about this. so important to understand this. Why do Christians say that lying is wrong? Not because the law said so. We're not under law anymore, right? That the New Testament says that very plainly and very clearly. So why is lying wrong? Because lying violates the law of love. Because lying undermines relationships. And you can't love someone if you don't trust them. And you really can't trust someone. Well, yes, you can. You can trust someone without loving them. See? So, why, so we lie because at a fundamental level, lying, or lying violates the law of love. Why do Christians refuse to gossip? Because it violates the law of love. Because it's unloving to gossip or speak poorly or negatively about someone else, right? Why should Christians stand up against bullying of any kind? No matter who's on the end of that. Why should Christians stand up against bullying? Because bullying violates the law of love. Why is premarital sex or pornography wrong or bad? Because when a man or a woman looks at pornography, you're reducing another person made in the image of God to body parts. And you're uh, taking pleasure in the body parts. You're reducing them to an object. You're stealing their personhood from them. Pornography violates the law of love. And furthermore, when men or women watch pornography, they don't know if the person in that video was coerced into that video or not. Right? You can't know the circumstances of that. So it's, it violates the law of love. Why is premarital sex wrong? It's wrong because you're having sex with someone that someday might be somebody else's husband or somebody else's wife and you're placing competing images in their mind that they're going to carry around when they eventually go to bed with their husband or wife. And I can't tell you because I know what some of you are thinking. You're thinking, well, yeah, but I'm going to marry her or yeah, but I'm going to marry him. And I can't tell you how many times. I was in college, and a girl and I were developing a relationship, and, and at a, and an appropriate point in our relationship, she confessed to me that she had had sex with a previous boyfriend. And you know what she said to me? I thought I was going to marry him. I thought I was going to marry him. But see, that's not the way it works out, right? See, it always goes back to the law of love. So let's even think about Think about it this way. So when the writers of the New Testament say things like this, when they say, pray for one another, 
When they say things like honor one another or care for one another or carry one another's burdens, those are all specific applications of Jesus' broader command for us to love one another. In other words, well, how do we love one another? Well, we love one another by praying for one another. We love one another by honoring one another. We love one another by serving one another. We love one another by... um, you know, whatever, giving to one another, by sacrificing for one another, by greeting one another. All the one another's of the New Testament are specific applications of Jesus' overarching command for us to love one another. And if you want to know how uncomfortable this can really get, just ask yourself, how should Jesus' command to love one another as he has loved us, how should that be lived out in a marriage? What should that look like? How should that be lived out in a home or in a household? How should that be lived out in a church? So, so important that we understand that the why of this discipleship journey is love. It's just love. Love becomes less so that others can become more. And it's so important that we understand the why of this journey. But, but now we've got to go back to this command of Jesus. He said, love one another as I've loved you. And then he said, by this will all men know that you're my students or my disciples or my follower. In other words, this is the way that people are going to know is in your love for one another. Right? And then so look what, how John takes this and he uh, elaborates on it. Because John was there when Jesus gave this command, right? So John says this. He says, this is how we know what love is. Jesus Christ laid down his life for us. I mean, it's that simple. He gave up his life to demonstrate his love. Paul said this as well, right? But we're going to come to that in a minute. He says, and we, because Jesus laid down his life for us, we ought to lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters. So what does it look like in the 21st century for a man or a woman to lay down his life for someone else? I would counter that has to involve uh, some of our resources, That we have to be willing to have less so that others can have more. And that that's the fundamental overarching command of our Lord and Savior. And so John goes on and he elaborates further. He says this is his command. To believe in the name of his son Jesus Christ and to love one another as he commanded us. Dear children, let us not love with just words or tongue but with actions and truth. In other words, with our hands. And you get this, right? Because it's so easy for us to be deceived about our ability to love. So like we're coming up on, you know, Hallmark Christmas, right? How many of you have ever watched a Hallmark uh, like commercial or Christmas movie and cried? Now come on, come on men, let's see some hands. I've done it. I've done it too. I know you're you're out there. And so what do you think in those moments? So you're crying because you just saw a Hallmark commercial, right? And so what do you think to yourself? I am so tender. 
I am so kind. I am so sensitive. I am so loving. And you think because you cried at a Hallmark commercial that you're a loving person. And John is saying that is not what makes somebody a love. Just telling someone that you love them isn't loving. Action, deeds, Actually doing it is what communicates to people that you love them. This is why I say that churches that just want to look at their cities and tell them that Jesus loves them aren't going to exist in 15 years. But it's the churches that are showing their city that Jesus loves them that will thrive and against which the gates of hell will not prevail. So this campaign is a concrete way of asking you to lay down your life for your brothers and sisters in Christ. Nothing more and nothing less. And finally, look at Romans 5.8. It says, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. This means, this is so important to understand because it relates to the folks we want to come alongside and help. So I want you to notice that Jesus sought you and I out while we were still sinners. He was seeking us out. Uh, This means... He sought us out when we weren't looking for Him, when we weren't looking for help. This means He went looking for us while we were hiding from Him. We weren't interested in Him, we weren't interested in healing, and we weren't interested in forgiveness. We didn't think we needed any. He sought us out when we were those people. He sought us out when we were going our own way and doing our own thing and making bad decisions. Decisions that were leading us further away from Him. So this kind of confronts a mindset that can crop up in our own minds, right? That says, well, look, I mean, why should we come alongside people that are recovering from addiction? I mean, they're just getting what they deserve. They're only there because of choices, you know, that they made. I mean, they made some bad choices. Why should we bail them out for that? Well, I'll tell you why. Because God bailed you out while you were making bad choices. And God bailed me out while I was making bad choices. So see, the cross levels the playing field for all of us. Right? There is no us and them anymore. At the cross, the ground is level. And there's no such thing as those people. They are people that need to be loved. That God asks us to love, right? So super critical that we get that. All right, here's what I want to do. So um, I'm going to show you a video. This is a a video of Angie Elliott. She's going to share a little bit of her story. And Angie, uh, I'm I'm not going to say that. I'll let the video speak for itself and maybe I'll elaborate in a minute. But, you know, as we think about coming alongside one another in family ministry, when we, when we articulate and talk about family ministry, that's our way of saying, look, we want to love one another better. Because all of us know what it's like to either be a son or a daughter or have a son or a daughter. There aren't any of us that aren't impacted directly by family ministry, even those of us that are single. So check out your screen and let's watch Angie's story together.
Mike, Mike and, and I got married, he had been in church, like, his whole life. I remember going to church, church a few times. I definitely, I definitely knew there was God. God. I knew there was Jesus. And so, so into our marriage, there were many times throughout when I was having the kids that I felt, I felt a need to know more or know God, but I didn't know how to connect to that. And so, so years, years went by. I think Hannah was about sixth grade. And she, she got invited by Annie Chinoweth to come to youth group. Mike and I both started seeing changes in her, just how she interacted with people, how she interacted with us, how she treated us as her parents. That whole, what does she have that I don't, even though it was my daughter, what, what like, rang true for me. In the years when I wanted to learn more about God and knew that we needed to be part of our family, we had visited many churches. And so one of the things that always rang true was they weren't willing to adapt to include us. One of the churches said, why would we change for just one child? So that created a little bit of church hurt, turned me off a little bit. So we came to Christmas service. We didn't come back again until Easter. And then from there, we just started coming every Sunday. Everybody just rallied around us. What can we do to make this possible for you? So every event that youth group had, the youth pastor would like reach out to us and say, we need to do this, but what can we put in place of? And so that's what our goal has always been in raising Connor since six months was he can do anything, and we want him raised to do anything, but it might look different, but you can still do it. And so all the different events, we got to come alongside, and then the church came alongside us, so we were a team effort in dealing with his food allergies or disability, whatever it would be. And it wasn't just Connor, it was a whole family. Like we were loved so deeply that took all that church hurt away. And it allowed us as a family to grow. It allowed us to learn Jesus, to learn grace, to love our kids in a way that we had never loved them before. And by the church just saying yes to us, like yes, like it doesn't matter what you have, we love you. And we want you to know the Jesus that we know, and we want that to spider web into your, into your life. Like it started with my daughter, then it rippled into extended family. I had owned a business for seven years, and I ran out of my house. And that was kind of at the end of its life, I guess. It was time for a change. Mike and I sat and chatted about what does it look like for mom to go to work when mom's always been at home. And so it was actually a family conversation. And so the thing that made the most sense was to have my schedule match my kids's. And so what made sense was to be a substitute teacher. And so I did that um, for about six months. And so a position opened in the preschool there. And it was just the assistant position. From the year, the teacher that I worked under transitioned, finished her degree, and transitioned into kindergarten, which opened the lead teacher position. And again, I, I just was able to transition into that. Now I'm six years in, 13 years old, when you look at all of my timeline, um, and six years with Shelby Central, and gosh, I love it. I love every moment of it to have relationships with those kiddos. At the, At the level, level you get, get to as a teacher, there's, there's nothing, nothing like it. it. I have an amazing boss. I love my coworkers. I have a beautiful room. Top of not, you know, brand, brand new. new. So, so to walk, walk away from, from that, could it to be a job? Why would I look at that? I just got serious in prayer and spent some time with Jesus. And like Jesus, my yes is in this. I need you to plainly show me that. And I heard in that time, kingdom worker. And then, and then I wrestled with what, what does kingdom work mean and what does that, that look like in um, it's ministry. So you're saying yes to ministry and then you're not saying yes to a job. Because if it was for a job, I would say no, right? Because I have 
I have what, what meets my family's needs. It's stepping into kingdom work. It's serving and loving people that I might not get an opportunity to do so. You know, my staff is going to be a discipleship community. We're going to work alongside each other and love Jesus and grow in Jesus. You don't get that in the workforce. You don't. To be able to pray for and with kiddos and families, those pieces, the ministry piece, is where my yes is at. Family ministry um, encompasses the growth of birth to five. And so that is the biggest developmental years in a child's life. The biggest impact and the biggest trauma happens during those years, but then it's ingrained through adulthood. And so if we can lay a foundation, socially, emotionally, mentally, physically, academically, cognitively, birth to five and build it, on this firm foundation. And then when they reach 18, we can launch them into adulthood as successful contributing members of our community. And so those trauma pieces that they may have had, maybe they won't because we got to be there with them eight hours a day or 12 hours a day, knowing the development of that child and how do we come alongside them. But here, we get to insert Jesus into all of that. When you look into these little baby spaces, on a daily basis and know pieces of their story. And that we can come alongside not only that child, but that family. That's what SCC did for us. And I watched what SCC did for my family because of Jesus working in and through every person that rallied around us. My kids are being launched. So I get to do that daily. Like, I'm going to be able to walk into my job daily and love birth to five and the staff and their families and their grandparents and aunts who pick them up and uncles that come to pick them up. It's not just babysitting. It is a community-wide restoration, right? It's restoring what's broken. So one of my favorite movies uh, is a movie called Gladiator. I mentioned earlier I'm a guy, right? <laughs> so like if I'm channel surfing and looking for something to land on and that movie is on TV, I'm going to land on that channel every single time. It doesn't even matter how many times I've seen the movie. And if you've seen the movie, you know it's the story of a Roman general who's betrayed, he's almost killed, sold into slavery. He rises to prominence as a famous gladiator in the Roman games. Well, so uh, the Roman Colosseum uh, was originally known as the Flavian Amphitheater. Construction began in 72 AD by the Emperor Vespasian. It was completed in AD 80 by his son Titus. The Colosseum has four levels and could house over 50,000 spectators. Now, we can put more people than that today in a football field, right? But for, for many, many, t like thousands of years, there was nothing like it anywhere in the world. The floor of the Colosseum was made of wood covered with sand, and fresh sand was brought in every day, single day, to cover up the blood and gore of the previous day's games. Folks entered the Colosseum through 80 arched entrances, and all but four of those were numbered. And one of those four gates was the gate the emperor 
uh, of Rome walk through. He would, you know, enter and leave through that gate. No one else ever did. And I'm going to show you in a moment. I'm not going to show it to you yet, but in a moment I'm going to show you a picture of that gate. And for almost four centuries, 400 years, longer than the U.S. has been a country, the Roman Colosseum was a place where death, strength, brutality were celebrated often for weeks or months at a time. Titus celebrated the opening of the Colosseum with 100 days of games. And in just the last three days of those 100 days of games, over 5,000 exotic animals were brutally hunted and killed in the arena. Each afternoon, gladiatorial marches would end with bloodshed or death. Within walking distance of this Colosseum was another uh, arena called Nero's Circus, where thousands of Christians were first fed to lions, forced to feed to fight wild beasts or even gladiators themselves. According to tradition, Nero's Circus was actually where the Apostle Peter was crucified upside down because he didn't feel he deserved to die in the same way as his Savior. Tacitus, a second century Roman senator turned historian, documented Nero's habit of having Christians wrapped in the skins of animals and thrown to wild dogs where they would be torn apart in front of a cheering audience. It was also Tacitus, by the way, who accused Nero of lighting his gardens at night with the burning crosses of the Christians he had crucified earlier during the day. Here's my point. The Colosseum at Rome reminds us of a time when brutality and the disregard for human life was just rampant. I mean, it represented the power and strength of the Roman Empire, which stood for almost a thousand years. That's five times longer than our country. The Colosseum represents the kind of kingdom that man would build the kind of empire that we normally associate with power. But the Roman Empire no longer exists and the Colosseum is now a tourist attraction. And if you go there today and you walk through the emperor's gate, the gate that only the emperor was allowed to walk through, this is what you will see. There is a cross at the entrance to the emperor's gate in the Roman Colosseum. The cross stands while an empire has fallen. And if you would have asked those men and women that were being wrapped in animal skins and thrown to uh, to wild dogs, to be torn apart, if there would ever be a day or a time when a cross would stand at the emperor's gate in the Roman Colosseum, they would have laughed at you. They could have never envisioned that that day would come, and yet here we are. Now listen to me. This is the kingdom I'm asking you to help us build. I'm asking you to invest in something that will last forever. I'm asking you to invest in something that's going to outlast the United States of America. One day, I don't know when, the United States of America, just like Rome, will cease to be. But the cross, the cross is eternal. 
And it represents the kind of kingdom that God would build. A kingdom where men and women love one another and pray for one another and serve one another and care for one another and honor one another. That's the kind of kingdom we're trying to build here at SEC. And that's what All In is all about. So while our team is coming up, here's what I want to do. I want to um, point out some dates, um, and then we're going to close with a worship song. So we're kind of starting to come near the end. This is week four. Next week, next Sunday, November 22nd, we, um, we're going to have a Commitment Sunday. So that's going to be a time when you can bring your commitment cards during the worship and you can turn them in for the commitment that you're going to make over the two-year uh, journey of uh, this all-in discipleship journey. Now, you don't have to make your commitment next week because we're also going to have a shorter time of commitment on Sunday, November 29th. And then there'll even be a third Sunday with a little bit shorter commitment on Sunday, December 6th. And then what we're going to do on December 13th is we are going to announce what we just did together. And we're going to talk about that and we're going to celebrate that. But beginning next week through December 6th, your family is going to have an opportunity to bring your pledge. And it's important that you continue to ask God what he's asking you to do. That's all. Just ask. And then do what he asks you to do, even if it's a little bit uncomfortable, even if it's going to make you a little bit less for two years so that others can be more. And some of us, I mean, some of us are going to have to really wrestle. Because I have no doubt God's going to ask some of our families to write some really, really big checks. Are you willing to do that? Are you willing to lay down your life for your brother? Well, we'll soon see, won't we? Because we're going to have... We're going to all have that opportunity to do that together. So I'm going to pray for us, and then Brandon's going to close us um, and the team in worship. Papa, thank you that you came to bring a new and a better ethic in your son Jesus. Thank you that the law of love um, is just what our culture and city needs. God, would you help us live it out well? Would you help us be willing to lay down our lives for our husbands, for our wives, for our children, even for those outside of our family? I ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen.